Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. A couple of days ago, I did upload all of the messages from Texas onto the Sovereign Grace Bible Conference website, SovereignGraceBibleConference.org. If you're looking for something to listen to online, go over there and listen to those messages. There were several that I think are really, really worth the time to go and listen. Let me particularly suggest... My friend Keelan Atkinson lectured for two days on biblical race relations, and he did an excellent job of it. I was really happy with that. And listen to Pastor Esch and listen to David Morris and listen to all of what's up there. It was just a real good time, and I'm glad it's up there. You know, when Roger Skeppel one night was preaching on, well, it was his second message, so it was Sola Fide, at one point he was describing us human beings that without Christ we are helpless and hapless. And for some reason, in my mind, listening to his voice through the PA system there, I thought he said, hatless. (laughs) And uh, I remember having that brief moment of thinking, what exactly do hats have to do with this? And then I realized he must have said hapless. (laughs) We're in Daniel chapter 12. So if you're listening to him online and you hear the word hatless, let me know, because apparently Christians wear hats. All right. Daniel 12. Daniel 12 is the last chapter of Daniel. We're going to wrap up Daniel tonight. Next week on Wednesday, Tom is going to do the second part of talking about adoption. And then the following Wednesday, Micah will be standing here because Josiah and I will be in New York next week, and then I'll be in Chattanooga the next week. On Wednesday morning, I'm preaching in Chattanooga. And so we're going to finish Daniel tonight, and then I've got two weeks to decide, so get your cards and letters in. I've got two weeks to decide whether it's going to be Ezekiel next or whether we're going to do Esther next. Yeah. So you shook your head. You, you almost imperceptibly shook your head. Esther, no? Yeah, how can you leave Daniel and prophecy and not continue with Ezekiel? On into Ezekiel. Right. Yeah, you just want to see me do the work. Because Esther is such a great book. Because it is. It's a and truly it's great book. But it gives us something else to go to. Okay, don't break into factions at this moment. Just get the cards and letters in, and, uh, and we'll see where we end up. So Daniel chapter 12 almost reads like an epilogue to the second half of this book, since we've gotten into the prophetic parts of the book. This just kind of wraps it up, kind of repeats a couple things, gives us a few clues but there's nothing in it that is uh, new information. He's not going to give us some, except for one, out of all these verses, one very controversial verse. Verse 11 suddenly introduces us to new numbers that we haven't seen anywhere else in the Bible. So we're going to have to talk about that because I'm going to show you this evening some of the many theories that have been propounded over the years about what Daniel 12:11 is talking about because it really depends on the period of time you're living in and what events on planet Earth you think you can plug into this in order to find some satisfaction for it. I contend that the reason we can't say definitively what the completion of Daniel 12:11 is is because it just hasn't happened yet. But we'll talk about all those theories as we go. So, Daniel 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. Okay, so who are Daniel's people? Let's be specific. Israel. Israel. Can't be anybody else. 
So Michael stands guard over the sons of Israel. And there will be a time of distress. Here's that time of trouble. Such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, Israel, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Now, that's not necessarily the Lamb's Book of Life. There are several books as you go through the Old Testament that are referred to. Moses talks about blot me out of your book and people get a hold of that and say, see, you can be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life because Moses says blot me out of your book. But you can look at the context of Moses and he's talking about kill me. Don't, don't let me continue on leading these rebellious people. He's not saying to God, oh, condemn me forever. I don't want to be in the book of life anymore. So as you look at context, you can kind of understand the idea that there are books, there are things written, there are things that are decreed, there are things that are declared in heaven. And because those things are already declared and because those things are already written, those things are going to come to pass. But notice what the angel has said here. Michael, who is the great prince who stands guard over the sons of Israel is also the guarantee that people from Israel are going to survive the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again because it's written. Has anybody here seen the movie Slumdog Millionaire? Have you seen that? In that movie, oftentimes, they'll make the declaration that things have to happen and they say, it is written. It is written. So it's like once things are written down in God's economy and his heaven, once he has adjudicated and decided things and they're written down, those things have to happen. And so all the way back here in Daniel, you see yet again what all the prophets say continually throughout the Old Testament that Israel specifically is not only going to be part of this future coming event, time of trouble such as never would be again, but they're also going to survive it. Why? Because God is faithful to Israel. And I know I keep pounding and pounding on this, but I just a half an hour ago had a conversation with somebody on the phone about this very thing, that if you end up saying that God is not faithful to Israel, then you have to admit that God is faithless that God makes promises to particular people and then does not keep those promises. His best friend, his wife, his chosen people, he calls them his elect in all the same language that we love. Okay, we're the bride of Christ and we're the elect and we're the, we're the friends of God and we're the, we're the brethren of Jesus and joint heirs. Well, if God can change his mind about Israel after using all that kind of language on them, then what guarantee do you have that he's not going to change his mind about you? He's a capricious God. He's somebody who can just say, yes, I know I promised you all that, but, but well, I didn't know you were going to be that bad. I didn't know you were going to be like this, so I've changed my mind. Never mind. All bets are off. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible determines things, declares things before the foundation of the world and apparently writes them down. And it's written down in heaven so that it must happen. I kind of look forward to getting to heaven just because I think it would be fun to go to the library there <laughs> and just see God declared these things. God declared human history. God determined what was going to happen on planet Earth, and sure enough, he did it. So there's a time of trouble, a time of distress coming specifically on Israel. Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble, very specific language, and Jesus refers to it as a time yet future to him, and we haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. There are people who say, well, the fall of Jerusalem, 70 AD. Well, perhaps that would be the worst time for Israel ever if it hadn't been for Hitler. 
And then everything gets really, really bad for Israel yet again. And Israel continues in their scattered state. They're scattered all over the planet. There's been a regathering of some Israelites, specifically Judahites, back to the land of Israel at this point. But we haven't seen the regathering. We haven't seen the establishment of the tribes. We haven't seen what Paul referred to when he said all Israel is going to be saved. We just haven't seen those events. And so they seem to be, I would be willing to declare, they actually are future to us. It's still coming. The ingathering is still happening. But but even the ingathering that we're seeing right now isn't going to be the ingathering when Christ returns. They look on him whom they've pierced. The Mount of Olives splits in half. That's going to be a major ingathering. Because all the way through the Old Testament, God kept saying, I'm going to bring them back from all the nations that I scattered them to. So God takes credit for scattering them, and God takes full credit for bringing them back. So on that day, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. That is just about the clearest reference you're going to find anywhere in the Old Testament to a future resurrection. When you read the story of Jesus raising Lazarus, when Jesus shows up, Lazarus' sister says, Lord, had you been here, he wouldn't have died which is why Jesus stayed away for three days before he started his journey, so that Lazarus would die, so that he could raise Lazarus, so that he could prove that he is the resurrection and the life. But he says to her, you're going to see your brother again. He's going to live again. And she says, I know he's going to rise up in the resurrection. So there was this Jewish concept of resurrection, which the Sadducees denied, but the Pharisees affirmed, And certainly in the Old Testament, you find clear statements like this. There is going to be a resurrection of people who are so dead, they're part of the dust of the ground, and yet God's going to bring them back up. The book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, what's that about? It's about resurrection, dry bones, and they all go back to their bone, to bone and sinew, and flesh comes on them, God breathes on them, life takes over, and then God interprets for himself what he just did and said, this is the whole house of Israel who I'm going to raise up on the last day. And so the prediction of Israel being raised out of their graves for a future judgment and a future resurrection and a future restoration permeates the Old and New Testament. So many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Now, where this gets controversial is people look at verses like Daniel 12, 2 and talk about a future resurrection, some to everlasting life, some to disgrace. Somebody look up John 5 and and read verses 28 and 29. We'll see Jesus talk about this same sort of event. Has somebody got that there? John 5, 28, 29, what's taking you so long? Why are you not already? You've even, oh, he's got the electronics. Okay, what do you got? Uh, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So apparently, Jesus doesn't think that it happened yet. He was still casting it into the future. And he said it very much like Daniel said it, that it's going to be a resurrection and people are going to be judged for the good and the bad, what they've done. The controversy becomes, you get to Revelation 20 and new information is added. And the new information is that there's going to be a resurrection of the good and the just 
and they're going to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years, and that it's not until the thousand years is over, according to Revelation 20, that then there is the resurrection of the second death, the people who are going to be raised and be judged for the bad things that they've done. And so I get very frustrated with people who read Revelation 20 and say, well, that creates a thousand-year gap between the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust, and then they back up into older information, like what we just read out of John or what we read here in Daniel, and they say, well, these verses read like the resurrection is both groups and the judgment all happens at once. And since these verses read like that, I conclude that Revelation 20 must be somehow symbolic must not really mean a thousand years, must mean something else. But it's undeniable that Revelation 20 divides those two resurrections by a thousand years. That's the statement. So if you're going to say that the resurrection, actual resurrection, the standing up again, that's what the word actually means, if the resurrection happened at the beginning of the thousand years and the thousand years began when Jesus resurrected from the grave which is the typical amillennial thought, well, then you end up having to spiritualize that first resurrection. And you say that those people were raised in a spiritual way and that everybody who comes to Christ is raised spiritually. And then when it all wraps up and Christ comes back, then we're going to see the resurrection of the unjust. Uh, do you see what they're doing? They're, they're denying what the Bible says. I believe that the Bible progressively reveals more and more and more information. What I mean by that is Abraham did not have as much information as you have right here, right now. Abraham didn't have 66 books of the Bible. He didn't have any of the Pauline theology. He didn't have anything past Genesis, even though Genesis hadn't been written yet. He didn't have anything about the Gentile church. What he had was what God said to him. And he believed what God said, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And so since Abraham, there's been other information that's been added over time. And as you read through, it's part of the reason we've been going through the Old Testament chronologically, so that we can see the building of this information piece by piece, block by block, line by line, here a little, there a little, until we have a fully formed theology. And so I look at the book of Revelation the same way. The book of Revelation is the last book that was written of the New Testament, somewhere 90, 94 AD, and John added new information that the resurrection that is predicted by Daniel, by Jesus, is going to be separated by a period of a thousand years during which time he's going to set up his kingdom. And that is the satisfaction of all those kingdom promises that you see all the way through the Old Testament. The Bible makes sense. That's what I'm trying to say. So I said all that to say that Daniel 12.2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. That's everything you need to know about resurrection, that it's going to be a resurrection to everlasting life or a resurrection to everlasting contempt. And those who have wisdom, those who have insight, will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. Those would be the people who have resurrected into everlasting life. And those who lead the many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. So now he's describing the type of everlasting life they're going to have. It's truly a glorious everlasting life. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Now you can read the book of Revelation and you can read the angel talking to John, and the angel tells him, don't seal up this book. It's a very direct command. Don't seal up this book, because the time is at hand. But that's a long time after Daniel, so Daniel's told, seal up this book. In other words, I've shown you this vision, but this vision isn't going to be understood until the unsealing of the vision. But look at what he says. Many will go to and fro, and knowledge will increase. 
So that is the history of the world, and it seems to be, in this context, an indication of what the world is going to be like at the time of the end, when the vision is unsealed, and when these things that have been described, the little horn, the ten-toed kingdom, the abomination of desolation, those are going to come about at a time when men are running to and fro and knowledge will increase. Now look at the planet for just a moment from God's perspective. Forget your own perspective for a moment. From God's perspective, for the entire history of planet Earth, when he put people in an area, they stayed there. Wherever they are, they stay there. And if they migrate, they migrated to a new place and stayed there. But if you look at the planet right now, if you bring up a map of United Airlines routes, what you see is just constant crisscrossing all over the world of all the places where all the planes are going. If you look at the planet right now and you look at the traffic and you look at New York traffic, which you're going to see soon, and you look at the, the traffic congestion, why is that? It's because people are running to and fro. People don't stay home. They don't stay in their, their territory. They don't stay where they were originally put. People are running to and fro all over the planet. It marks this generation that we are so upwardly mobile. Wasn't that a cute way to put it? <laughs> <laughs> but then look at the other thing that goes with it. It's not just men running to and fro. Knowledge will increase. We call this age that we're living in, you know, there was the Stone Age, and there was the Iron Age, and there was the Industrial Age, and we call this the Information Age. In other words, we're not making stuff out of stones and iron and Industrial Revolution out there being industrious. No, now we're buying and selling information. And your information is running rampant out there on the Internet. If you've spent any time on the Internet, your information exists out there. And, and knowledge increases. I have access at this moment via my computer to the vast majority of the literature on planet Earth in all of human history. I can go, sitting at my computer, to the Louvre in Paris. I can... I can pull up any mathematic equation that I want to, and I don't want to. <laughs> mathematic equations don't do a lot for me. But if I need to know it, James said to me today, standing in the kitchen, he said, I'm sorry that my class that I'm taking right now didn't teach me more about Unity, which is a program for uh, game development. And he said, so I'm on YouTube every day increasing my unity skills. He has access to endless information, endless amounts of knowledge. He's just sucking up the knowledge from everywhere. I'm a member of lynda.com. lynda.com is nothing but knowledge. It's all information. It's all how-to, how to run different software, how to do different things, how to hold a meeting, how to... It's all how-to. In other words, what I'm saying is there has simply never been a generation prior to this generation right now that fits that description as exactly as the generation we live in. We're busy running to and fro, and knowledge is increasing. Then add to that that no generation prior to ours could imagine that somebody could take a hold of the world banking system in such a way that he could say, you have to have a mark, and without that mark, you can't buy, sell, or trade. Just today, I heard a person interviewed on the radio who was talking about the fact that America is now going the way of the European Union and Australia, that they are becoming cashless societies, and that it's all becoming computer credits and that that's what your money is based on. So whoever gets a hold of the primary banking computer, which at this moment happens to be in Brussels, Belgium, whoever controls that controls the flow of money and can say whether or not you can access your money. When you have actual dollar bills, actual silver certificates, they were bearer bonds where you used to be able to go technically to Fort Knox and say, here's my 
my bearer bond, my silver certificate, you owe me that much silver. And then paper money ceased to be on the gold standard or the silver standard, and it just simply became this note. You can take a dollar out of your wallet and read it right now. It says, this note is good for all debts. It's backed by the U.S. government, which is why the U.S. government can randomly just print more. We'll just make more. Do you have enough gold on reserve for that? No. Do you have enough reserve? No. That's why inflation happens. So as money is being systematically devalued, we're all just getting used to computer credits. I don't get paid dollar bills. He doesn't hand me dollar bills. He hands me a check, which I put in the bank, which shows up as computer credits in my bank account when I go online and log into my account. And then I send some of those credits to the different people that I owe money to and the different bills and the different companies. I send that stuff out. There's no money. There's zero money changing hands. I bring this up to say men are running to and fro. Knowledge is increasing. And at this point, it's very easy for us to imagine that there would be a system where you can't access your money unless you have the appropriate mark. And no generation prior to us can say that. Even the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s. When I was in high school and college, there weren't computers, there weren't credits, there were so. Since I retired. Since you retired. <laughs> and, and look at how fast it's all happening. And it's moving so fast. Look, when I grew up, TV, three channels. ABC, CBS, NBC. You're too young to laugh at that. Three channels, which is the only reason that some days half the country would all watch the same program. And I was the remote. And you were the remote. Yeah, go over there and change that. Yeah. Now, how many channels do you get? Endless, endless. And then you go on the internet, there's endless more channels. And that it's just, there's so much information. So the angel said to Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the time of the end. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this side of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And the one said to the man dressed in linen, who is the man dressed in linen? Go back to chapter 10 for just a moment. Chapter 10, verse 4 says, And on the 24th day in the first month when I was by the bank of the great river, that is the, the Tigris River. Okay, so now we know the bank of what river he's describing. I lifted my eyes and I looked and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a pure belt of gold of euphaz. His body was like beryl. His face had an appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words was like a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread <laughs> fell on them, and they ran away, and they hid themselves. So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision. When we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, we concluded that this is as close to a Christophany as you're going to get. So it makes sense, the reason I bring that up that in chapter 12, the angels would stand on either side of the bank of the river, but they would ask the man dressed in linen. He's the one who has the answers. He's the one who knows what the declarations of heaven are. He's the one they inquire of. And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river. The other two apparently are on the bank. He's standing above the water. How long will it be until the end of all these wonders? Remember I said this is like an epilogue. You have to know all the stuff we've been looking at. How long the abomination of desolation? How long this time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again? How long this little horn and the oppression of Israel? How long 
is that going to be? Verse 7, And I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it should be for a time and times and half a time. Pretty much every commentator agrees that's three and a half. It's half of seven. You've got Daniel's 70th week split in half, three and a half and three and a half. So it's going to be a time, times, and half a time. Now that's 1,260 days. In the book of Revelation, it's going to be spelled out again. Not just time, times, and half a time, but John spells it out as 42 months, so you know it's three and a half years, and John spells it out as 1,260 days. So we know that it's exactly three and a half years. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, who are the holy people? Israel. Israel. As soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. They're all going to come to their end. In other words, yeah, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be awful. It's going to be a time of trouble such as never was or ever will be again. But it's for a limited period of time because God has already written it. God has already decreed it. He has already decided it. It is time, times, and half a time. And when it comes to its fruition, it's going to end because everything that the planet is going to go through is going to be the worst thing that it's ever gone through. But the good news is that God is going to protect his own. I believe he's going to take the church off the planet. I believe that he's going to protect Israel, his beloved. But he's going to punish them for all the things they've done, for chasing their foreign gods, for not keeping his Sabbath, for not keeping his law. He's going to punish them. It will be for a time and times and half a time, and as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be complete. As for me, Daniel speaking in the first person, as for me, I heard that I could not understand. Why do you think Daniel couldn't understand? Pardon me? Wasn't given to him to understand. It was sealed up. He couldn't get it. Plus, he didn't have all the information we have. And he didn't have John's vision, which runs so parallel to Daniel's vision, and the angel saying to John, don't seal this book up. But God gave a vision to Daniel and withheld his ability to understand the vision. Which is why I keep saying over and over again, I know I'm repeating myself somewhat tonight, when I read people interpreting Daniel, or when I read people interpreting John the Revelator, when they get too wild with their speculations and interpretations, I keep going back to the primary rule, which is nobody knows more about what John saw than John does. And if John says, I saw four horses, well, then that's what he saw. You can't change that. And no matter how you interpret John, unless your interpretation allows John to say what he actually saw, then you're not interpreting correctly. Same thing with Daniel. Daniel saw what Daniel saw, and he described it the way he saw it and the way it was presented to him. It was sealed up so that he couldn't understand it. But he wrote it. He wrote it all down because God said, write it down. Okay, I'm writing it all down. I'm passing it on, but I don't get it. It's sealed up. Thank God it didn't stay sealed up. And he said to me, verse 9, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the time of the end, which means they don't remain sealed. They become unsealed at the time of the end. Many will be purged. He's talking about many Israelites. Many will be purified and refined. But the wicked will act wickedly. Was there ever a more axiomatic statement? 
The wicked will act wickedly. The way I put it is, it's never a surprise to me when sinners sin. That's what they do. They're sinners. The wicked will act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand, even though it's going to be revealed at the end time. It's going to be unsealed. It's going to be demonstrated. None of the wicked are going to understand. I think the greatest evidence of that is the prediction in the book of Revelation again, that when Christ comes back, that the sun and the moon are going to go dark, like sackcloth and blood, and the stars aren't going to shine their light, and then the sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the heavens. And it's going to be like the lightning that goes from the east to the west so that everybody sees it. The sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the heavens so that everybody sees it. And what do the people on planet Earth do? Run and hide. They still don't get it. They still don't understand. They run to the rocks and the caves, and they say, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. It would be better to be crushed by boulders than to endure what he's about to hand out. They, they still don't understand, which, by the way, also, let me just add, if it were true that all people had to do was have an adequate inducement in order to choose Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I would say that's a pretty good inducement right there. I would say that the Son of Man returning in judgment is a good reason to make him Lord and Savior right away. Oh, you're back. Oh, you're going to destroy us. Oh, let's see. Should I have the rocks fall on me? Or should I make you Lord and Savior and then I'm saved and you're not going to... They don't have that option. It doesn't exist. They run. They hide. They don't understand. Why? Because God doesn't let them understand. It's right here in the book. The wicked will not understand. They're not going to get it. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have wisdom, who have insight, will understand. Why? Because it's God that's going to give them the insight. So now the controversial verse, verse 11. And from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, just a moment ago, I told you that time, times, and half a time is mathematically defined in Revelation as 42 months, 1,260 days. This is an extra month, 1,290 days. But wait, verse 12 says, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. Those numbers don't show up anywhere else in the Bible. It's an extra month, and then it's another 45 days, another month and a half. And so there have been a tremendous number of theories through the years as to how to deal with those particular numbers. I will tell you right off, I don't know. I know this. I know that it has to do with Israel, just like all of this prophecy does. And apparently the angel is saying, if you go to the places, he's already told them, Ammon and Moab and Edom, if you endure all the way through the 1,260 days, if you endure all the way through that and you're refined and you're purged and, you're, and you have insight and you lead people in righteousness, if you go all the way through that and can make it another month, if you can hang on another month then, and he says how blessed it's going to be if you keep waiting and attain to the 1,335 days. Apparently there's a blessing waiting for Israel. After the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. And yes, they're going to have the the place cleaned up, but it's not going to happen quite that quickly. In fact, they're going to be putting up signposts wherever there's bones. Don't forget, this is the time that Christ comes back and mops up the floor with the armies in the Megiddo Plain. The blood flows to the bridles of the horses, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field come and feast on the flesh of captains and the flesh of kings. And after that, there's going to be 
a tremendous valley of, of death and bones. And, and so the next job God gives Israel is to clean up the land because it's God's land. And they have to go bury the bones or put up markers wherever they find bones so that the people whose constant job it is to clean up the land can come find it. So let's talk about this 1,290 days for just a moment. Sure. So I read several different commentaries to try to figure these numbers out. I wanted to be able to come in here with some kind of good and solid theory of what these numbers are about. Uh, couldn't find one. Couldn't find a good definitive, this is what it's about. Found a lot of theories. Even the uh, Jameson Faust commentary lists several of the theories that have been handed down through the years. And I'm going to read some of those. As to this epoch, which probably is prophetically germinant and manifold, the profanation of the temple by Antiochus in the month of Ijar in the year 145 BC till the restoration of the worship by Judas Maccabeus on the 25th day of the ninth month of Cheslu of 148 BC according to the Seleucid era, would be 1,290 days. So they see the fulfillment, one theory, is that it's Antiochus Epiphanes. And of course, they have to kind of fudge the numbers a little bit to get to 1,290 days. But hey, what's a little bit of fudging between friends? Because we're going we're gonna to find the fulfillment of this prophecy. I don't find that satisfying, especially because Jesus says it hadn't happened yet. So it can't have happened 150 years before Jesus. But that was one of the theories that was thrown around. Some folks have said, like Auberlin argues, it's the period of pagan Rome after Christ's death. And that there was a culmination of apostate Rome by Muhammad and by the Antichrist and the abomination still has to reach its climax, and that would be the measure of the iniquity being full just before Messiah comes. So he actually ends up allegorizing the numbers and saying that it describes the time of apostate Rome. Does that satisfy you? No. Is that good? No. Trigellus says he thinks that Jesus at his coming will deliver the Jews. An interval will then elapse during which their consciences are awakened to repentance and faith in him. A second interval elapses in which Israel's outcasts are gathered and then the united blessing takes place. And these stages are marked by 1,260, 1,290, 1,335. I find that the most tenable explanation that there's the 1,260 days of tribulation, and then there's going to be a period of time where Jesus is in gathering Israel. But not to be outdone. Cummings thinks that the 1,260 years begin when Justinian, in 533, subjected the Eastern churches to John II, Bishop of Rome, ending in 1792. Did you get that? 1260 to 1792. When the Code Napoleon was established and the Pope was dishonored. So 1290 reaches to 1822, about the time of the waning Turkish power and the successor to Greece in the empires to the east. 45 more years would end at 1867, which would be the end of the time of the Gentiles according to Cummins. He sees every day as a year, and he sees it as being the period of the Roman church from the split between Rome and Constantinople and the time in 1260 when Justinian subjected the Eastern churches to John II, the Bishop of Rome. Okay, that all depends on when you lived and what you saw happening in the world. Here's another one, a theory advanced by a commentator whose last name is Clinton. The seventh millenary of the world begins in 1862. Seven years, 
1869, the date of the second advent, he believed that in 1869, Jesus was going to come back. So he interpreted that passage as being predictive of Jesus' return, which he decided was going to happen in 1869. So then the seven years to 1869 would constitute the reign of the personal Antichrist. In the last three and a half years, there'd be a period of final tribulation. Enoch, or else Moses, and Elijah, the two witnesses, prophesy in sackcloth. This theory, Jameson and Faust write, is very dubious, you think? <laughs> Hales makes the periods 1260, 1290, and 1335 begin with the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and end with the precursory dawn of the Reformation and the preaching of Wycliffe and Huss. So all I'm trying to show you is that really interpretations of that verse run the gamut. We don't have an inspired... We don't have an inspired comment on it. The Bible doesn't tell us what it means. And so when human beings, by their own cleverness, decide to get a hold of stuff like that that isn't clarified in the Bible, and, and it just does frustrate the fool out of me that even though this is not clarified, men keep trying to clarify it. And yet passages like Ezekiel 37, which are clarified by God, this is the whole house of Israel that I will raise up on the last day. They're going to be my people. I'm going to be their God. God says that. God comments on his own activity, but people ignore that. But they go to town on verse 11 here. So I don't know what verse 11 means outside of I like the idea that it's saying to the Israelites that if you can endure the 1,260 days, and you can endure for another month as the cleaning up and the ingathering is happening, that the kingdom is going to happen somewhere in the 1,335 days. I find that at least cooperative with the rest of what we find in the Bible. But as for you, verse 13, but as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest. In other words, you're going to die but you will rise again for your allotted portion. That means God already knows the portion he's going to give to Daniel. Daniel already has an allotted portion in the inheritance of Israel and the kingdom to come. You're going to rise again for your allotted portion when? At the end of the age. So if that hasn't happened, if we haven't seen Daniel walking around with his allotted portion, then we're not at the end of the age. I don't care how many numbers you run or how many theories you propound. If you don't see Jesus coming back, if you don't see the kingdom established and Daniel running around, if you don't see these things, it's not done yet. It's not over yet. And why is it not over yet? Because the church, the bride of Christ, is still here. The time of the Gentiles period still has to run its course. Paul says in Romans 11, after the times of the Gentiles are full, then all Israel will be saved. And so that all is still to come. Don't think that just because you're here that you are the know-all and end-all of human history or that God got to the church and went, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to do it with Israel, but they were so darned uncooperative. I'll start all over again and I'll make a church and... And now that I've made the church, that's the zenith of my creative ability, and I'm done with Israel. Don't believe that, because both Testaments keep saying, God's not done with Israel. He's got plans for Israel. He's got promises for Israel. He's got a kingdom for Israel, and his son has to be the king of Israel. That all has to happen. Does it make sense? So Jesus has to rule the whole earth. He has to rule on earth. Has to. The whole earth. The whole earth. Oh, yeah. Is yes. the abomination of desolation the, kind of the starting point for the uh, time, times, and half time, the, the 1200? It appears to be, yeah. Well, could this verse 11 be saying then that, because it says specifically for the time, uh, from the time of the regular sacrifice abolished in the abomination of desolation, so there'll be 1290 days. But it, it says 
the regular sacrifice is stopped, could the, the 1260 days start of the abomination of the desolation, but there's a 30 day period between the, the ceasing of the regular sacrifice till the abomination of desolation starts, and then there you get the math would kind of work out that way where you would still get the. Is your question, could it be? Yes. Well, the answer is yes, it could. Yeah, sure it could. I mean, sure. That, yeah, your theory is as good as any of them we've read so far. Sure. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. But the reason we don't know is that it hasn't happened yet. When it does, I, I hope that we're all gathered around the railings in heaven looking down on the planet and going, oh, there it is. Yeah. It just but, seems to me there's something interesting about it mentioning specifically the ceasing of the regular, uh, of those regular sacrifices. Right, well, right. And there may be a correlation to be had there. I'd be afraid to state categorically that's well, what yeah. it is, but could it be? Sure. Yeah. Isn't it fascinating that the revelation to Daniel can be so very specific, <laughs> and yet Daniel is specifically told, you're not going to understand it. Yeah. And yet, we think we have to be able to figure out the details. Yeah. When Daniel was told, no. You're no, you're not going to get it. Yeah. Daniel didn't get it. Why yeah. do our commentators? That's why I keep saying Daniel, nobody knows more about what Daniel saw than Daniel does. So that John may have revealed a little stuff that we can understand. Oh, I, I agree. But not everything. No. John heard in Revelation, I've brought this up enough times now, he heard the thunder speak something, and he was told, don't write what the thunder said. So God's not telling us everything yet. There's still stuff out there we don't know. He's telling us what we need to know. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.